Let me ask you a question as we open up God's Word this morning. Have you ever had a time when you were so completely and totally out of place that, that, that the moment you arrived, you knew you didn't belong? Ever had one of those moments? Yes, of yesteryear. 1999, my dad came down from Chattanooga, Tennessee, and we decided to make our first, and not coincidentally, our only trip to Hogtown, Gainesville, Florida, for the Tennessee-Florida game. And this was the height of the UT-Florida uh, uh, rivalry. I hear that game day is coming back to Knoxville this week for, for that game. But this was when we were in the top five and playing for national championships and Heisman Trophy winners and SEC championships. And it was all awesome. And so we had just won the 98 national championship, Tennessee did. I don't remember who we played, but it was a good game. And so we, we got... Sorry, sorry. Anyway, moving right along. So my dad and I decked out in our gear, and we get our flags a flying from from our car, and we're and we're heading down um, to the swamp, to the sewer, Hogtown, and we are we're finding our little secret parking space, and we got out of the car, and it took me about a nanosecond to realize we had made a catastrophic mistake. Okay, so we're walking. The first thing we have to do is we have to walk the gauntlet down University Avenue. So we're going past the, the purple porpoise. I don't think it's there anymore. All the frat houses. Um, I feel like I am Ichabod Crane on my horse in Sleepy Hollow. Okay. It is cheers and taunts and there's like ghosts and it was creepy. It was freaky. So we get our tickets. We're, we're, we're going into the stadium and the genius who had gotten these for us, gave them to us for free. They're, that's what, what you get. Right in the smack dab middle, there's your Tennesseeism, okay, of the bull gator section, okay? And so I'm looking around, you have these grown men putting their arms around each other, singing the boys of old Florida. It was totally creepy, all right? So I'm like, oh my gosh, get me out of here. So after it's over, of course we lose, and, 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 and this is not a joke, no exaggeration. My dad and I get outside the stadium, and we are immediately surrounded by this group of fraternity guys, okay, like in a big circle. This was not good. And so they begin to taunt us and jeer us. And, of course, I went all Neo and stuff on them, you know, like in the Matrix. No, I did not. We, got, we ran out of there as fast as humanly possible, okay? We were two vol exiles driving away from our nightmare as fast as we humanly could, okay? What's your experience of being somewhere where you knew you didn't belong? As we saw last week with Daniel... Daniel could not drive away from his nightmare. He had been stripped from his bed, stripped from his family, literally pulled from his bed in the dead of night, carted off in chains, thrust into service in the king's court, had his name changed. He became a eunuch. Okay, kids, you can talk to your parents about that at home afterwards. Um, not not popular gig at all. Given a new identity, enrolled in the dark arts a new profession, but here may have been the hardest part of all. He had no escape. He had no escape. And Daniel had to begin to wrestle with, what does it mean for me to be an exile in this place, at this time, in this context of my life? God, how do I live here? What do I do? Now, I know that many of you, and I've, I've had the conversations with you, feel like you are living in the middle of a cultural nightmare. Some of you, I know, are, are angry. You're confused. You're embittered as you sort of come to grips with this sort of minority Christian 
status that seems to be emerging. And, 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 if, and some of you would, might even say, you know, Pastor Paul, it feels like we've been kicked out of our own home. It feels like we've been kind of kicked out of our own land, out of our own country. However, I want to reframe that for us this morning, Four Oaks, and for this series. You see, we sense that this cultural exile is something different, something unique. But, you know, actually it's not. Because Peter says in 1 Peter 2, he reminds us, Four Oaks, that we are sojourners and strangers. And this is the way it has always been. Which means, guess what? We've never been home. Okay? We are exiles. We are passing through. And God never, ever, ever intended for us to rest our head comfortably in this life. He never meant for us to find hope in this place. He never meant us to, to, to place our ultimate standing in our cultural standing. And so listen, this, this is what's hard for us as God's people. So sometimes, in order to remind us who we really are, God has to introduce circumstances, trial, suffering, to remind us this is not our home. To hasten us onward in the journey ahead. And that's what God was doing with the people of Israel, and that's what God was doing with Daniel. And as we saw last week, remember, Daniel is writing this book himself 70 years after he's first taken to Nebuchadnezzar's court. He's reflecting back, and he makes, he makes no equivocation about this. He says, we are here by the will of God. And as we're going to see, that truth forms a bedrock for him for the, for the rest of his life, it gives, him to, it gives him the courage to accept where he is, accept who he is, accept where he is, and it gives him the opportunity to ask God, what now? What does faithfulness look like? What does exile look like as a sojourner? And that's the question before us this morning. Four Oaks, how are we then, as Francis Schaeffer said, how are we then to live so we're going to look at three aspects in this passage, um, three characteristics that Daniel displays that I think will help us wrap our minds around who we are and how God calls us to be faithful. So we're going to look at Daniel's disposition, we're going to look at his discernment, and then we're going to look at his duration. So Daniel 1, beginning in verse 8, we'll flash it on the screen for you. But, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigns your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king? Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter. And tested them for ten days. 
And at the end of the ten days, it was seen they were in better appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Let's pray. Lord, we are your people and we are hungry. We're hungry for your word. We're hungry for a word from you. Lord, we, we desperately want to know what it means to walk as an exile, to live as a sojourner and a stranger. Lord, give us the grace to do that. Lord, apart from you, we can do nothing. And we need your Holy Spirit even now to illuminate, to enlighten our hearts and our minds. So Lord, we ask that you would do that. In your name we pray. Amen. When we consider Daniel's disposition or his stance that he takes in this passage, it might be helpful, a little history lesson. Back in the early 70s, there was a young woman who was a college student at Cal Berkeley uh, named Patty Hearst. And she was the granddaughter of William Randolph Hearst, who was a publishing tycoon. And she was, while in her dorm room, kidnapped and held for ransom by a radical leftist activist group. Is there another kind? Okay, in the early 70s, right? And so, and, and she was subjected to a year or two of intense brainwashing and propaganda and persecution and abuse, so much so that she became confused about who she really was. And, and, and part of, and, this, and there's a lot of controversy about, about this, but slowly over time, she began to take on the characteristics of these captors, she fully, in fact, assimilated into their group, so much so that she began to participate in their illegal activities and a bank robbery, all kind of on the national scene, and she ended up going to trial and then jail. Like I said, there was a lot of controversy about, did she know what she was doing? Did she not know what she was doing? That kind of misses the point. The reality is that she was hopelessly compromised and assimilated into this life. Now, if you understand a little bit of that, you understand what the goal was anytime the Babylonians came into your town. When they took captives, they weren't taking slaves. They were taking people that they wanted to desperately, hopelessly compromise. And this is why Daniel has the most thorough of all indoctrination propaganda programs into a pagan culture that anyone could ever experience. We've mentioned them some already. Enrolled in the dark arts, given a name change, his culture, his, his history, his family, totally obliterated. And we looked at that last week. And so now when we come to the text in verse 8, which I think is the key verse, not just of this passage and not just of this chapter, but I think it's one of the key verses of the entire book of Daniel, things suddenly take a turn. 
there is a resolution, there's a resolve, there is a turning point. Daniel says, enough is enough. And so look there at verse 8. It says, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself. And those two words, resolved and defile, those two words are going to serve us, for Oaks, as sort of a roadmap going forward in this series about what it means to live as a sojourner and a stranger and an exile. So we want to spend a little bit of time on them. The word resolved, purposed. Daniel set his mind. Daniel decided he would not be moved. See, see Daniel was immediately upon being sort of thrust into this new scene, being bombarded, immersed in pagan culture. It's like if you go online now, and you can just go to a, a news website, and heaven help us, okay? You were just immediately bombarded with images and, and themes and, and, and cultural values. It's almost like you cannot, in our culture, get away from it, can you? Whether you're on the TV, you're on the radio, in front of the computer, you read it in the newspaper, any of you still read the newspaper, whatever. And this was Daniel. And understand Daniel's posture here. Daniel was not floating down the lazy river of life. It says this idea of resolve, he was before the Lord. He was wrestling. He was praying. He was searching his heart. He was studying God's word. He was searching God's promises. He was not passive. He was engaged in this battle for his own soul. And now when it says he resolved not to defile, that word means to contaminate, okay, or poison. It has an Old Testament religious sacrificial sort of overtone. So when the Israelites were in the wilderness, camped in the wilderness, all two million of them, and when someone in the camp died, what had to happen? They had to take the body outside of the camp because it was now richly unclean. And to sort of symbolize for them how holy God was, you know, no unclean thing could be kept in camp. But here's what's interesting. Not only did the dead body have to go outside the camp, but who else had to go outside the camp? You, if you touched it. And so there had to be this ritual cleansing sort of, sort of period and season where people began to to, to confess their sins and be cleansed until so they could come back into the holiness and presence of God. Oh, here's, here's what I want you to say about this. Daniel was highly sensitized to any kind of con- contamination, any kind of ungodliness, anything that would get in the way of his communion and worship with God. And when we, when we read this, we, we immediately, I think, think of something like Romans 12 too, where Paul reminds us that our bodies are what? Living sacrifices. They're offered up to God as an act of worship, pleasing to God. That's who God says we are. Now, let me just ask you a question, folks, before we kind of start unpacking this. How do you view your life in relationship to the Babylon around you? Do you connect everything that's happening to you to your spiritual act of worship to God? As Abraham Kuyper once said many, many moons ago, there's not one square inch over your life that Jesus Christ does not look and say, that belongs to me. So it, do you view, view all of your life as worship? 
all of your life, every area of your life, every decision that you make is a spiritual act of communion with God. Daniel did. Let me tell you about another guy who did. This is a story so familiar to us, we, we, we easily blow past it and miss, I think, the main point. Eric Little of Chariots of Fire fame, a movie came out in 1981. It depicted Eric Little, who was an English runner in the 1924 Olympics. And, and part of, of his personal conviction before God is that he would not run on the Sabbath, that he would not run on Sunday. He said that's set apart for God, for worship, and for rest. And so he, he refused to participate in any heats or events on Sunday, and it cost him big. Cost him a chance at the 100 meter. He was the greatest 100 meter sprinter at the time. Cost him a chance at the relay. You don't see this in the movie, but it cost him opportunity for gold for a number of events. And here he had set before him fame and honor and country. And one of the most poignant scenes of the movie is when he's on the ship on the way over to participate in the Olympics. And one after another, people begin to entreat him. There's the, there's the British royalty, and there's the politicians, and there's the coaches, and there's the other players. But he is, hear the word, resolved. He said, I will not run. And my fear, and see, our, our mind immediately does what? Well, surely those are not applicable to us. And, you know, you know, Eric Little, he is just a prude and a legalist, and he doesn't understand his freedom in Christ. And, oh, my goodness, no, 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 you missed the point, okay? Eric Little had resolved, I will not be defiled with the king's food. And this is the one place that he could push back and make his stand as an exile. Guys, we walk through Babylon every day, do we not? We are surrounded by its sights, its sounds, its values. Here's my question. Daniel had a disposition to be resolved. Not even, at, not even talking yet about what those decisions are for you. But do you have a disposition towards resolution? Are you bringing your world, your culture, your media choices your experiences, your social life, your friendships, and bringing them to God and saying, God, show me what holiness looks like. God, show me what it means to please you. Show me what it means not to defile myself in this particular situation. What's your posture? What's your posture? What's my posture? See, Daniel had a disposition not to be defiled. And he also had the discernment to apply it. So let's look at point two. It says in the text that the issue that Daniel resolved, made resolution on, was this idea of food and drink. Now, it's, it's, all, it's a little ironic when you think for, for a second about all the things that Daniel had already said yes to. He'd already said yes to a new name. Yes to new clothes, yes to a new home, yes to a new college, yes to a new job. Yeah, I mean, yes to all of these things that they were attempting to assimilate it into. But yet, bizarrely it seems, Daniel decides to put his foot down on what? Food and drink. Okay? And that's kind of like, you know, husbands, you telling your wife, honey, 
Today, I'm only watching three college football games and not four, okay? And so, so be blessed by that, okay? So, so I'm starting at 12, and instead of going to midnight, I'm cutting it off at 9 p.m. so that we can have some quality connecting time, right, okay? Don't bother to go in bed that night, guys, right, okay? That's, that's like a difference without a distinction. It's totally inconsequential. And we look at the situation and we're like, this is a such small consequence, Daniel, compared to everything else that you have said yes to. Now, we want to try to understand a little bit, get in Daniel's head, of what he's thinking here. Now, I think this is important because a principle is going to emerge, I think, that we can apply to our own lives, our own selves, our own families, when we think about what it means to walk in holiness before God. And, and just, just to let you know, the commentaries, there is no, there's no shortage of opinion as to what's going on here. So some say, well, you know, this is just a straight up and down matter of dietary law. So there was Levitical standards in the Old Testament, said that Jews had to eat this and not eat this in order to distinguish themselves, and that's what Daniel is, is employing here. The problem with that is that wine was not on that list. See, as a Jew, you could drink wine and alcoholic beverage. And, and in fact, we learn in Daniel 10.3 that Daniel is at that time, eating at the king's table. He's eating the king's food. Now, some have said, kind of like in, in Corinthians, hey, this was food sacrificed to idols. And Daniel knew this, and so he wanted to abstain from it, not be polluted by it. The problem was that in that culture, all foods were sacrificed to idols, including the vegetables and fruit that he was eating. Others have said this has to do with the idea of covenants and treaties. You know, that, that Daniel couldn't sit and eat at the king's table because it, it symbolized political, um, you know, engagement or an alliance, like, kind of like sharing a meal with your enemy. Again, we see other times in Daniel where Daniel is doing precisely that. Okay? So now, now while all of that may be relevant, we ultimately don't, decisively know about all those things. I, I think there's something more basic going on, and we want to pay attention to it because it's relevant to us. See, Daniel to this point had subjected himself to total assimilation. Yet, food and drink were maybe the only choices he had left to distinguish himself. And nowhere else do we see the provision of God more clearly than where? At your dinner table. So what do you do at your dinner table before you eat? You pray, you thank God. What do you do during your, your dinner besides fight? Okay, You thank God Okay, for your food. You praise him for what's going on in that day. Daniel saw this as the opportunity where he could maintain his distinctiveness and identity in a powerful in public way, just like it was for Eric Little in his running. Now, this is the way Sam Storms describes this. I think this is really good. He says, what we eat and drink, like what we wear and how we speak, generally constitutes an outward expression of our self-identity and commitments. Daniel's abstinence thus symbolizes his avoiding assimilation. In other words, eating the palace provisions, at least in Daniel's way of thinking, entailed a compromise of faith that getting a new name, learning Babylonian culture, and serving in a Babylonian court did not. How does that apply to us? 
Because there's a lot in your life right now that you do not have a ton of control over. A lot of you don't have control right this minute about where you work. A lot of you right this minute don't have control about who your neighbors are. You don't have control about who's in your class at school. You don't have control about necessarily where you live or whom you room with right this second. But no matter where you sense that you have little control, God always provides a path for walking in faithfulness. See, so while there are certain ways which all Christians in all times and all places okay, are called to walk faithfully and distinctively, for example, love your neighbor, marital faithfulness, the Ten Commandments, worship God, those never change regardless of the context, there are other times when what holiness and resolution and defilement for you is going to be totally contextual like it is with Daniel. And, and for some of us, that can be really frustrating. Okay? If you've taken the Myers-Briggs and you're a J, I won't even go into all this. This totally frustrates you, okay? Because you want some resolution. You want to say, Pastor Paul, tell me right now, what are the three things that I can and can't do? Tell me the three steps, okay, to holiness. Pastor Paul, do I get to watch three games this Saturday or two? Which one is it, okay? PG or 13, tell me, yes or no, okay? No, how about that? All right, Alcohol, yes or no? How many drinks? Okay, Pastor Paul, how many times, we've heard you talk about worship and Sabbath, how many times a month is it okay for me to miss church? Give it to me, give me the number, okay? I got one for you. That many. Okay, zero. Come on, we're just having fun. You see, the problem with a list is that we don't have to listen to the Holy Spirit. See, when we have a list, we can mainly control things. So when I'm given an allotment of two games a Saturday, that's something I still got control over, and I can watch that whenever I want and do what I want, and I've got my list and everything's great. In a list, no discernment is needed. See, I think sometimes our, our need, our insatiable desire for a list betrays something about our heart. It betrays that we just want to see what we can get away with instead of resolving like Daniel to come before the Lord and to say, Lord, here it is. It's all yours. You need to show me what holiness looks like. You need to show me what resolution looks like. You need to show me what defilement looks like. Because what's your heart today about your life? What's my heart? Let me, try to, let me try to apply this in a more specific way. Go back to verse 8 for a second. But Daniel. Okay. Now, can we get past the bathroom humor? I'm about to say but several times. Can we, get, can we do that? Okay, can we get past that? Okay, thank you. You'll still laugh, but it's okay. All right. For us, as a Christian, what are the buts in your life? What are they? I know this is shocking. You might actually need to say no to some things. Me too. Folks, if you have no place in your spiritual exile where you are experiencing the but, nowhere in your spiritual exile where you are, you are feeling the resolve not to be defiled, uh, could be a good, 
good opportunity, good chance that you and I have accommodated somewhere along the way. Parents, let me just speak to you just for a second. Um, And I speak to myself as a a parent with four, four children. When your child or student comes home and they tell you that you have been, they have been treated unfairly, there has been some injustice okay, um, done against them. Someone in the class has said something. Some teacher has done something. They've done something, obviously, that, that has been completely undeserved. Okay? What is your instinct as a parent at that point? What is your instinct? Oh, let us sit down and learn the larger spiritual lessons of life. No, you're firing off that email. You're calling that administrator. You're calling that youth pastor. Don't call Pastor Rob about any of this, okay? But you're doing, you're, you're locked and loaded. You are ready to go because heaven help if your child is a little bit out of step. And our desire, our great temptation is to what? Accommodate them, to help them assimilate, to help them not to stand out, to help them to not be distinguished. Parents, I really want to call us to consider what it means to teach our children what it means to be exiles. See, they don't cover that one at the parenting seminar very often. What it means for them to walk in holiness. What it means for them to not sit at the king's table and be defiled. That, now that's a hard road. That's a hard road. But it's God's road. This was counseling someone some time ago who was in a secular academic setting. This person was attempting to walk in faithfulness, um, at the same time engaging with non-Christian friends and teachers and the secular culture and all, just kind of in the middle of all this, like Daniel. And, And this person gladly accepted the status that they were in until one day they were asked to participate in a class exercise that, let's just put it this way, made them feel like they were being defiled, that they were having to make a severe compromise um, they were ma- having to make a, an accommodation in order to participate. And so this person graciously asked for her to be excused from this class, knowing, knowing that everyone around her was going to be looking in, knowing that everyone around her was going to be asking why, knowing that she was probably going to be misunderstood. It was a but moment. What's yours? See, we, we oftentimes call people like that legalist. Well, they don't understand their freedom in Christ when in reality, we may not understand what worship and holiness is all about. It's the way of the exile. Because let me just say this. I don't know what those areas are for you. I'm glad I don't know. <laughs> I'm glad I not the Holy Spirit into your life. There's certain non-negotiables. But there are certain things where you're going to have to walk this out personally before the Lord. You may actually have to pray about these things. You may actually have to wrestle with them through the Holy Spirit. And let me just say, there's a great temptation to want to judge everyone's B-U-T, right? Everybody, everybody, you want to judge someone else's but Eric Little, legalist. Daniel, way out there. This young woman, just whatever. Don't do that. You have to stand before the Lord with your own conscience, but make no mistake, you must stand. You must stand. I must stand. 
Don't be shamed into removing your own butt just because you might be misunderstood. Where are the butts in your life? Where are they in mine? Because one of the amazing things about this story is that it doesn't just give us this principle, which I think is in terms of what it means to be resolved and not to be defiled, but it also gives us some amazing practical wisdom to how to walk that principle out. And let me just rattle them off three, three quick things real fast, okay? Notice how Daniel demonstrates respect and kindness through all of it. So what does he do? It says he approaches, approaches the chief of the eunuchs. He does not throw a hissy fit, okay? He doesn't act morally indignant, like what in, how in the world are pagans acting like pagans? How is that happening, okay? He doesn't threaten to go on hunger strike. Do you notice that? He's initially rebuffed, but you sense that even in this, God is using the kindness of Daniel, the resolve of Daniel to give him favor. And you can see this um, when, when even though Daniel brings this request to him, he's not summarily dismissed. The guy kind of, if you dig down to the Hebrews, is, is basically saying something like, you know, Daniel, I can't do anything about this. I'd get my head chopped off. But if you can find another way, without involving me, go for it. See, you don't have to be a jerk. You don't have to use coercion or threats. I mean, what does Daniel come in and do on this 10-day period? He doesn't say, by golly, you will give me 10 days and we will see what's up. He doesn't say that. He respectfully asks permission. He has a submitted attitude. He has a deference to those who are in authority. So, Daniel's respectful. Daniel also demonstrates, and this is important, faith-filled waiting. I want you to think about this for a second, parents. What would it be like if your child was ostracized for 10 days in the school cafeteria? What would you do? Which lawyer would you hire to file your lawsuit, right? Okay, that's oftentimes our response. We don't know what happened in this 10 days, but we most certainly know these, there were other exiles, and there were other slaves, and there were other people eating. And, and was Daniel misunderstood? Was he judged? Did people say things about him? We don't know. But we do know that this period of 10 days was full of faith. See, guys, when we, when we resolve okay, to not be defiled, we don't need to assume that we won't be misunderstood. We don't need to assume that everyone will get it. We don't need to assume that it might not blow back on us. That's how these buts come into play. It was the walk of faith. Trust God. Trust God. Last little thing before we get to our last point. Notice that Daniel does not delay his disobedience. Daniel does not delay his disobedience. Oftentimes, we are susceptible to this idea that let me get into my social context or my new job or my new neighborhood or a new, new class. Let everyone see that I'm not a freak, that I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not a religious zealot. Let me establish some credibility, some trust. Let me not say anything. Let me not stick out too much. And what, 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 what's wrong with that? One, it never works, right? The next thing, you are just totally assimilated, floating along. Daniel does not delay disobedience. 
He doesn't wait to testify about his convictions. He does not wait until an opportune time to say, I'm not going to eat at the king's table and defile myself. What does God do with all this? What does God do with your resolution and my resolution to walk faithfully, humbly, and in holiness before him? Third and last point, and this will be done quickly. I want you to notice Daniel's duration. Look down at verse 19. It said, the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. That doesn't mean they chilled with the king, right? <laughs> they weren't hanging out. This means they had standing with the king. It, it, I mean, it's, it's an irony. They come in, in in shackles, but here they are, the right-hand helpers of the most powerful man in the world. They are mere steps from him. How did this happen? I just want you to notice the sheer number of times, just so that you know that that people's responses to you and people's responses to me are ultimately, ultimately about about the providential sovereign hand of God. I want you to notice how many times it says God gave. Okay, look at verse nine. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion. Okay? Then it says in verse 15, at the end of the days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh. That's that's encouraging at this point in my life. Okay, then all the youths who ate the king's food. Okay, verse 17, as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and Daniel understanding in all visions and dreams. See, in every way, God opened the doors for faithfulness for them. Now, here's a word of caution. Word of caution. This is not formulaic. In other words, these are not, if you do these things, pagan kings will like you too. That's not what this is. Because as we will see later, there are other times when Daniel and his friends are not granted favor, and their very heads are on the block, And when we think about this idea that they're both garnishing favor and opposition all at the same time, what does this remind us of? We we studied the book of Acts a couple years ago. And what do we see time after time? The, The church multiplied, and it gained favor, and it was respected, while at the same time, James was getting his head cut off. Peter and John were going to prison. The church was being scattered and driven out of Jerusalem, away from homes and families. See, this is what happens when God's people resolve to not be defiled. Sometimes favor, sometimes opposition, but listen to this, almost never indifference. Almost never indifference. See, when we put our stake in the ground as a church, and as many of us have done individually, that we are going to stand for the rights of the unborn that we are going to support single moms in crisis pregnancies, that we're going to raise the flag for adoption and foster care and guardian ad litem. Make no mistake, folks, you will be ridiculed. You will be held up for scorn. You will be unfairly mischaracterized and attacked. 
But you know what oftentimes happens in those situations? Simultaneously, people sort of begrudgingly marvel at you at a distance. What in the world is going on there? What would possess these people to give their life and their time and their money for something like this? It's almost like you're an exotic animal in a petting zoo. Like, no one knows what to do with you. They just kind of look at you and like, I know something's different. I can't explain the difference, but I know it's true. But with faithfulness and resolution and and the resolve not to be defiled, there's almost never indifference. Last thing we're done. Last verse of this chapter, look there in verse 21, shows, I mean, it's... This is kind of Daniel's nanya moment. Okay. This is great. Because remember, Daniel, 70 years in the court, he sees two kingdoms, okay, the Babylonians, the Medes, and the Persians, four different leaders come and go. But what does it say? Look at verse 21. It says, And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Because I want you to see, I told you last time that, that Daniel is full of the gospel. I want you to see the gospel right here. Kingdoms rise and fall. Men and women rise and fall. Cultural exiles rise and fall. But God's people go on. God is committed to building his church. You see, Daniel represents for us the spiritual living reality we call the church of God, the people of the king. And so while exile is falling, darkness seems to just sort of be hovering overhead, Daniel will remind us, four oaks, have hope. Have hope. God is going to, to, to use your exile witness, my exile witness, to build a kingdom that will never end. It won't be this kingdom. And that's hard for us. It won't be this kingdom. It'll be the one that's eternal. God, give us his grace in this situation to be a Daniel. Resolve, resolve not to be defiled. Let's pray.